everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update podcast. This is episode 26. I've got some good feedback on uh, the last episode. I've also got a lot of great emails, mostly all on the same theme of what's the deal with this particular species. We're going to be talking about pine, cherry, and yellow heart this week. So stay tuned. Hopefully we can learn a little something along the way. So I had, um, well, it's been an interesting week. Obviously, the uh, COVID-19 stuff still continues. Um, we've seen not so much an, uh, a lessening of tensions, but people kind of adjusting to the new norm and finding ways to continue to do business. Certainly construction is severely hamstringed just by the ability to ship and move materials, regardless whether it's lumber or you know pipe fittings or something. It's just very, very difficult to, to move stuff around. And of course, uh, maintaining quarantine and being able to transfer materials from one person to another is, is very, very difficult when you have to keep a social distance. But there are people who are figuring things out. And what's interesting is we might actually see a resurgence of some of the small businesses. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm afraid to say that I think a lot of small businesses in the lumber industry may not be around in, in a couple of months. But there are some instances where the agile nature of a small business is allowing some of these small cabinet shops, some of these small remodeling construction firms to essentially live together. Um, I know a couple cabinet shops. In fact, I was recording an episode of Wood Talk this week with the guys and I brought up a cabinet shop I know where um, it's just a bunch of bunch of bachelors working together and they just decided, you know what, we're going to quarantine together. And I can think of three companies that are doing this and a couple lumber yards actually, who people are now just living at the lumber yard. They are quarantined together. I know at uh, uh, lumber yard where I work, we actually have an apartment upstairs and it was originally designed for um, truck drivers as a place that they could stay overnight. It also became a place where out-of-town guests could stay or uh, road salespeople, when they came in, they could stay upstairs. And there are a lot of places that are that are worked out that way. Several cabinet shops I know, the owner of the cabinet shop actually lives in an apartment upstairs. So there's instances where guys have set up cots in the shop and, you know, they are overcoming the, um, you know, social distance thing with the same way you overcome it with your roommate or your wife or your kids, you live together. Obviously, if someone, you know, has the the virus in your house, that's, you got to stay quarantined. And in this instance, we're actually seeing several of these small shops that are continuing to take orders. And just like we would buy something from Amazon or order your groceries online and, you know, they drop the stuff at the door and maybe you have to do a little bit of uh, Clorox cleanup of your box of cereal before you bring it in the house. We are able to deliver lumber to a lot of these cabinet shops, you know, literally dropping it on the doorstep and then leaving. And these guys are able to bring it in and continue to work and continue to get things done. Likewise, they're able to deliver their finished products in the same manner. So it's kind of interesting as I say, things are still tough, but people are finding a way. And those that are resourceful, those that, hey, I got to keep working or I'm going to go out of business, they're figuring it out. So the I'm trying to put a bright spin on this because it's, it's actually really commendable when I see people just making things work and not being held back and daunted by, you know, this unprecedented situation we're running through. So I'm really hopeful, actually, that we may see a resurgence of the small business.
Um, you know, that would be great if, if there's one thing that came out of this to see that that quality craftsmanship of these small business guys coming back into being. I'm kind of excited by that. So, again, things are still tough. We are seeing a lot of people struggling financially. But you know what? Find a way, folks. We're going to get through this. So moving on, um, I got some feedback. Last episode, I talked a little bit about that Dutch tool chest project and a way to make it lightweight and durable. And I had um, some great feedback. Jeremy wrote in and said, I have a species that I think might be perfect compromise. It's sassafras. It's about as hard and light as Douglas fir, but better looking. (laughs) Well, you know, it's subjective there, but it doesn't have the early wood slash late wood hardness differential. It's uncommon, but here in central Pennsylvania, I know of at least two sawmills that carry it regularly. Usually runs around 225 a board foot. It's also supposed to be very decay resistant. I've read that some canoe paddle makers like to use it as a compromise between the ash and cedar that are often used. Softer and lighter than ash, but more durable than cedar. Very, very good species pick, Jeremy. And yes, it is quite rot resistant. In general, anytime you have a species that smells a lot, good, bad, whatever, I mean, sassafras, it smells wonderful. But what you're smelling is is a volatile uh, extractive mix. The resins and things that are off-gassing to create that smell, that particulate smell, is what is actually making that resistant to decay and water and a lot of things like that. So Western red cedar has a strong odor. Alaskan yellow cedar has a strong odor, and they're both very good exterior species. Sassafras is the same situation. But this also just demonstrates um, a great point. And thank you, Jeremy, for making this point is the original um, problem was how do we make something that's lightweight and durable? We define what we mean by durable and lightweight, and we look to the technical specifications to figure that out. Jeremy basically did the same thing and looked at, you know, we were talking about Douglas fir and he's like, yeah, I don't really like the look of Douglas fir. He went looking for something a little bit nicer. Didn't really like the early Lakewood translate. Um, transition, which I admit is very difficult to work with, especially with hand tools in my shop. And he began looking at hardness and weight, and he came up with another species. In the end, it always comes down to there's any number of species options you can come up with, but can you actually get that? And in his case, yes, you can. And I'll tell you what, folks, if you ever have access to sassafras, get it. It's a great wood to work. Smells fantastic um, while you're working it. It's just a, a wonderful experience all around. So, thank you for the feedback, Jeremy. Very, very good points. Michael actually uh, called in with a voicemail, and I'm going to play it here. He's out on a walk, so there's a little bit of wind noise, but he brings up a very good point on the same question about the Dutch tool chest and selecting species from an engineer's perspective. Hey, Shannon. Uh, Michael here out of Adelaide in Australia. I've just finished listening to your last episode during my morning walk. Could have kickback uh, or feedback on the that two chest material selection. Really like the what you did there. Two added points that I would put in there as well as an engineer. Number one, uh, it's always good to have three reference points um, rather than just a, a um, how shall we say a top and a bottom and maybe also a middle, um, just so you have a. A bit of a better understanding and you can trade off your um, mechanical properties better but the other thing is the final use so if we're going for curie how much of the material 
is, or how much of the total weight of the chest with tools is going to the material component. Now, it don't turn out that the total material component only changes about 5% or 10% once it's loaded up with tools and uh, you go to rock metal from Curie to rock metal. Um, I think that's always something worth considering because you can also then start ranking based on changes in material weight. Um, really simple calculation how many board foot you're expecting to use. And it just needs to be a rough first indicator, but it's a good start. Well, thank you, Michael. And I don't know about you guys, but he says he's out for his walk. Um, I want to say he's in Adelaide, somewhere in South Australia. So I had a, a nice visual with the, the wind blowing off the ocean and him, you know, somewhere wandering around Kangaroo Island or something like that off the southern coast of Australia. So uh, thank you for that. I also very much appreciate the engineer's perspective on this. And he actually brings up a very valid point about three reference points rather than just two. And we can look at this a couple of ways. First of all, um, we use two technical specifications as reference points, hardness and weight. There could be possibly a third one in there that we could consider as um, as a third reference point, probably maybe crushing strength or max crushing strength, or looking at this a different way, uh, the reference points could be the species we use. So we talked about Curie or Polonia and um, maple as two um possible uh, options here, throwing in another species kind of right in the middle there. So in other words, from a Janka hardness perspective, instead of looking at one with a 400 pounds per square inch and one with 1400 pounds per square inch, can we find one that's like 800 somewhere in the middle and finding a third reference point? And that can help you that much more, uh, you know, uh, one extreme to the, to the other and then a middle point can help you a little bit more in, in figuring out the right species to go for. But what I really like is the point he made about total weight. And this comes up a lot in my day job where, you know, we're looking at a a customer who say is wanting to build a deck and they're looking at something like eBay, but really what they want to use is Teak. And, you know, the cost difference from eBay to Teak is pretty substantial and people kind of balk at Teak. But then you look, we, you know, you take a step back and you look at the total cost of materials, labor and everything to build the deck as part of the total construction project. Say it's a brand new home build. And what you find is the difference from Ipe to Teak, while it may look really expensive when you just look at it there, in the total percentage of the project, it's like less than 1%. And it really doesn't make that big of a deal. So take a look at your chest and figure out when it's loaded, how much does it weigh with all those tools? And that tool component, because it's a tool chest, obviously that tool component's gonna stay pretty constant. So then you know that it's going to at least weigh this much with all the tools in it. So what's the lumber gonna be like? And if there's a 10 pound difference from one species to the next, and say with all the tools, it's a total of 300 pounds, it's really heavy no matter what. Is there really gonna be that big of a difference between 300 pounds and 290 pounds? It's still gonna take multiple people to lift the thing. But if the whole thing is a lot lighter, say it's only 50 pounds, there could be a significant difference between 50 pounds and 40 pounds if there was that 10 pound difference in lumber. So take a look at the big picture and and try to figure out, is this really that important? Because, you know, if the weight issue isn't that that important because of the speed, uh, because of the, the, the small um, contribution, shall we say, of lumber to the overall weight, then going with something super hard like hard maple 
might just be the no-brainer at that point. So yeah, very, very good point. Thank you for the engineer's perspective on that, Michael. Um, So then I got uh, an email from Ryan and he was asking about, uh, I had brought up the super strong, like pet friendly uh, polyurethane. And he said, I was kind of intrigued by that and wondered, what do I look for? And he went out Googling high test polyurethane and don't think he came up with a bunch. What you need to look for, Ryan, is, um, well, first of all, if you have a, a hardwood flooring company or a hardwood flooring refinisher in your neck of the woods, the best thing is to call them and say, I'm looking for um, something that's going to stand up to the wear and tear of large dogs. Um, they will have a product in mind. And the reason I say this, Ryan specifically is in New Zealand. So any product that I might recommend that's available here in the East Coast of the United States may or may not be available in New Zealand. So your best bet is to find someone local who actually specializes in this and ask them what I need. But if you really needed to Google something, you want to look for um, pet-friendly hardwood finishing options. Google something like that. I did that locally and I came up with seven or eight different products. And really what it comes down to, um, the other thing that Ryan asks is, is it, you know, just a simple to apply finish? Is it a special two-part mix? Is it something that, that myself relatively new to this could apply? And really it ought to be, if it's a commercially available polyurethane, um, it's going to be, you know, right out of the can. What, makes it a, to quote you, a higher test finish is the mix between the the varnish and the amount of resins and the solid content that's in there. And certain um, manufacturers will make a scratch resistant or pet friendly polyurethane. And it's not quite what you think. If you make it super, super hard, then it's actually going to scratch a lot easier, right? So what it ends up being is, is more durable in the fact that it will give under the high pounds per square inch of a dog's toenails going in into the wood. And while it won't scratch, it might deform a little bit more. So there's a lot of different points there. And that's why I say Google something specifically pet friendly or maybe not pet friendly because then you start getting into um, actual flooring. You want to make sure that finish is in your in your query and you might have to refine that that search uh, string a little bit, but uh, really focusing on that durability aspect. But in the end, call a flooring refinisher in your neck of the woods and ask them. Um, they will more than likely have, if not a specific product to recommend, what specific things to look for when you go and examine the can uh, in the back of, of your home center. So thank you for that question, Ryan. Very good question. And I wanted to move on to some emails because we've got some good ones here. Um, Wilbur wrote in, he said, I was at our local Home Depot this week with my wife. She wants me to build a shelving unit for our bedroom and wanted to make it out of pine. I took her there to show her the difference between number two Eastern white pine and the clear pine that Home Depot carries that I think comes from New Zealand. So she could see the difference between clear pine and pine with knots. I was surprised to see that the number two Eastern white pine was only a dollar cheaper than the same sized clear pine. In the past, I was used to the number two Eastern white pine being six to $10 cheaper than the clear pine, which makes sense because number two versus clear. So he sent me some links to make sure we were on the same page about what particular boards we were talking about, but he says, any idea what's happening with Eastern white pine pricing? So this is a, this is a, not an easy answer, Wilbur. Um, first and foremost, the the stuff that comes from New Zealand you're referring to is called radiata pine, and it isn't always 
what, in fact, a lot of times it is specifically labeled as radiata pine. Some Home Depots will call it the clear pine, um, clear or select pine, but more often than not, they are labeling it as radiata because it is an import product and it has to be labeled as such. But here's the key difference. And I think what you'll find if you were to go back in time and look at the pricing, yes, the gap has closed between number two pine and the, the, we'll just call it the radiata stuff. But what's really happened is the radiata pricing has gone down and the, the domestic white pine has gone up a little bit. So the gap has been closed on both sides. Home Depot has long been the primary supplier of radiata pine. And as they have continued to buy more and more and sell more and more of it, they've continued to be able to renegotiate their contract with the mills that produce the radiata in New Zealand. And because they buy such an incredible volume of it, they have a really good buying program that allows that has allowed the price to come down significantly. Moreover, radiata has been in production now long enough that there have been multiple efficiencies that have found their way into not only the production chain, but the transportation chain. And that has allowed the price to come down. So for many, many, not many, many, for uh, many months, Home Depot has really kept the price the same because that's what the customers were used to buying. But they've started to lower that price now because they have been able to realize significant savings in their cost of the material. And at the same time, there have been increases in the cost of the domestically produced material because of a lot of the factors that I've been talking about in previous episodes, like the, the white, oak, white oak episode, um, I've talked about poplar shortages as well, where the actual people who are producing the material, there's fewer of them. And more importantly, many suppliers have realized what can be, ha- what can be done by essentially going straight to the source, going straight to the sawmill. And the internet has democratized that supply chain to the point where small retail yards, small cabinet shops and everything are going directly to Sawyers for domestic products. And though that has kind of leveled the playing ground, but also made the availability of a lot of these domestic products harder to get for a big behemoth like Home Depot. They're used to being able to buy in huge volumes and getting really, really low prices because of that. And now they're having to actually buy in more regular volumes that the regular size business runs into because they just don't have it. They, they call and say, we want 10 truckloads. And the mills say, sorry, I only have two. So they're buying two truckloads and they're paying the same price that a lot of other people are paying. In other words, a more expensive price. So their domestic species in general have gone up a little bit. Now, Home Depot can absorb a lot of those things. They are still buying in large quantities. And more often than not, because it's Home Depot, a lot of Sawyers, uh, sawmills will specifically kind of cater to them. If Home Depot comes knocking your door with an order for, you know, 30 truckloads of material, you do everything you can to try to fulfill that order because you would love to be a client of Home Depot. You want to talk about a sustainable client right there. Um, But there is still an increase across the board. This is Lowe's and Home Depot in those domestic materials because more and more people are buying it direct from the sawmill and there's just less of it to go around. The supply chain used to be those big 10,000 pound gorillas like Home Depot kind of snatched up all the good stuff and what was left was for the small, medium-sized businesses. 
It's not so much anymore. And really with sawmills struggling, they're taking business wherever they can. So this goes back to what I was talking about with, with COVID-19. We might actually see a resurgence of the small business. And um, I, you're seeing that realized there. Not only efficiencies in Radiata and a better buying program has reduced that cost, but the inability to corner the market on the domestic side of things has made the cost go up to Home Depot on the number two pine. Now, all that being said, softwoods and pine in general is a really, really cloudy topic. Um, what people call clear, what people call select, what number two or common, all these grades tend to get thrown around and they are about as accurate as the ingredients, about the about as accurate as the name of finishing products. You know, teak oil and tongue oil. Um, yeah, <laughs> those things are, they're, they're, it's just what it says on the front. That's not actually what's in that, in that jar of finish. The grading systems for softwoods are very intricate and really what you call your material can be any number of things. First and foremost, it is probably not Eastern white pine because Eastern white pine in general, the price has gone up dramatically on that because the quality has gone down. Um, so let me, let me clarify that. And this also contributes to Wilbur's question. The quality of Eastern white pine has gone down a lot, so it's a lot harder to get good quality Eastern white pine boards. Even though Eastern white pine is a softwood, it has always been sold like a hardwood. A very much the same pricing, same volume board foot type distinguish um, um, classification, whereas a lot of the softwoods are sold by the linear foot, they're already come pre-dimensioned, all that stuff. Eastern white pine, does not grow very fast compared to some of the other pines. And unless that that um, stand of trees is well managed, it doesn't actually make very, very good lumber. So what we're seeing is the old growth stuff that made really great stuff that kind of built America that everybody thinks about when they think of wonderful heart pine. Um, it's not around as much anymore. And what we're seeing now is third, fourth, fifth generation um plantations, if you will, we can't really call them plantations, but uh, cuttings that really are not quite the same quality as they were before. And to get the good quality stuff, you may have to go through, you should say for every hundred board feet of material you have, 25 of it is good. So that is driving the price up in order to meet that particular grade. But then you're also seeing a larger volume of lesser grade stuff coming into the market and more and more people are saying, eh, it's only pine, that'll do. And they're buying that lesser grade stuff, which is great for the overall product and the overall forestry, silvicultural, silviculturally speaking. But when you are specifically looking for that clear pine, you will find pricing all over the board. So it's kind of a convoluted answer, Wilbur. Um, it's a mixture of, of uh, buying programs and availability. But I think, again, the bright side to that uh, is the democratization of the supply chain. It's easier to go direct to the source these days than it ever was before. So you, you can't monopolize the market. And Home Depot is monopolizing the market on pine for quite some time. Eric wrote in and he said, I was at Groff and Groff Lumber up in Lancaster County, PA last week. Great place, by the way. Love that shop. Um, I was looking for approximately eight inch wide FAS four quarter cherry. They had a few hundred board feet in stock that was either narrow or 12 plus inches wide. The fellow I was working with said, good cherry is in short supply. Why is this? It ended up being more economical for me to buy five quarter boards for me to get what I wanted. Well, 
Eric, this is very much the same story. Um, Domestic hardwoods are faced with fewer people who are cutting them down, fewer people who are sawing them. So there is a lower volume of near inventory available. And it's not so much that cherry is endangered. It's far from it. But cherry also is being, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of pigeonholed. Um, cherry is being used specifically for a lot of kitchen cabinets. You will find cherry being used for flooring, and it's being bought for that specific use in mind. So if you're buying cherry for cabinets, you're using mostly cherry veneered plywood for your boxes, and then you're buying very narrow cherry to make your face frames, your rail and style type stuff uh, for your doors. Maybe for your panels, you'll find that a lot of those raised panels are actually composite panels that have been skinned with veneer. So that's the other thing. There's cherry for flooring, there's cherry for cabinets, and cherry for veneers. And as the the logs, the trees are being cut down, they're being separated at that point to be sent off to the peeling uh, veneer mill, sent off to the, the sawyer to actually saw narrow pieces for cabinets, and then you've got kind of what's well in flooring flooring requires just a lower grade because only one face is visible and again mostly narrow and any length will work to think of your typical pack of hardwood flooring it's it's all the same width but it's a narrow width and there are a variety of lengths it's relatively easy to meet that so what's left is you're just raw lumber, your rough sawn material that goes to the retail lumber yard. In general, retail lumber yards are buying in smaller quantities. They're not maintaining a larger inventory on their shelves. So as you said, there's only about a hundred board feet there to begin with. I can remember going to Groff five years ago and you would see 2000 board feet of four quarter cherry sitting on the shelves. What you're seeing now with about a hundred board feet is become more and more common because the turn rate of rough lumber is so low and you just can't keep that material. You can't shell out the cash for 2000 board feet of material and have it sit there for, you know, eight months that, and it gets picked over and little by little, the overall quality of that material goes down. So it's something to think about. It's not a matter that quote, good cherry is hard to find. It's that good cherry is disappearing before it even gets down the supply chain to the retail lumber yards. The really good stuff, the 100% clear stuff, is going to the veneer mills, um, and they're being made into plywood. The um, Even the good stuff that may be of a wider quality is being sawn into smaller parts to be for the flooring industry, because there's a lot higher demand in the flooring industry, and there's a lot higher demand in the cabinet industry. So. There's good quality cherry out there in eight and wider, but it's being ripped into two inch wide rails and styles more than anything. And that's really what's driving that market. Cherry has never been a huge market, not since like the 1950s. And even then it was secondary to the oak markets. So it's always kind of been a B market. And while things were... um, not real popular in the flooring and the cabinet world because there was a while there where there was just a lot of maple. It was all maple. It was all white wood going into kitchen cabinets. Cherry began to see a resurgence and you could get better quality stuff in the raw lumber, the stuff that you know woodworkers would go to the, the retail yard and buy. Well, that has turned around 
and cherry is now being specced in a lot more moldings and a lot more cabinets and a lot more floors. And those industries are snatching up the material and they're specifically ordering from the sawmill. This goes back to the previous question about pine. Even the small cabinet shops can go to a domestic mill and say, this is the spec I'm looking for. You know, I need an average width of two and a half inches for this particular project. And they can actually have boards sawn to that particular spec, you know, with, with a specific grade that comes out of it. And in the end, that means more of the material is being used. Cause if you've got a log and uh, you know, you need to, to get FAS boards out of that. So by grade FAS needs to be at least a six, uh, six inch by eight foot long cut or board out of that. And, um, if you go to the mill and say, look, I don't need that. This is what I need is two inch wide and random length. The Sawyer can be a little bit pickier about how he saws it. He can maximize the yield of quote, good, clear stock by cutting around knots and things because he doesn't have to net an eight foot long board. This really is a change. It's a paradigm shift. Whereas in the past, the Sawyer never really talked to the end customer. The Sawyer talked to the lumber yard or the, the wholesale um, clearing or clearinghouse yards, and they just sawed up logs to kind of maximize the board footage yield, not by the grade or not by the end use. The end use was completely unknown to the actual sawmill. These days, the end user is talking to the sawmill and having the boards more custom sawn to meet a particular spec. It's great for the total yield. It's great for the sawmill because it means that they actually get a better price um, because they're doing more work. They're being a little bit more specialized in that. But for the folks that are just selling raw lumber, it's a lot harder to get the quote good quality stuff unless you are prepared to buy by the truckload. Um, and the company I work for, that's what we do is buy by the truckload. So I can tell you there's no shortage of good quality cherry. I've got a whole bunch of it that's absolutely gorgeous. I used to have a perception of what cherry should look like. And then I came to work at McIlvain and I was like, wow, this stuff is amazing. And it's because when you're able to buy by 10, 15, 20,000 board feet at a time, you can get a better quality. Uh, material. The rest of the time, the sawmills are are really sawing to that specific customer. So finally, Lance wrote in and he said, what's the deal with Yellowheart? My local lumberyard said they have pretty much given up on trying to get any of it, and I'm having a hard time finding any online in small quantities. Did the Brazilian farmers burn it all down, or is there some new government regulation making it harder to import? Lance, uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, I shouldn't say um, it's, it's a mixture of things. Yellowheart is at best a tertiary species in the South American market. It never has been so large that anyone is buying it in bulk. It's always been, you know, if you own a concession, you go out into the forest looking for uh, Ipe primarily. That's the big, the big mover down there, decking Ipe. So you're going down, you're looking for Ipe, and you have a concession plan that says you can cut down these other species, but really your concession is being managed for the primary species, maybe the secondary species, and rarely is it being managed for the tertiary species. A lot of times, those tertiary species are removed uh, because they could provide, um, by removing that tree, you could provide better nutrient and better light to one of your secondary or primary species on the land. Certainly, you can't just cut down willy-nilly. They are still managed by that concession. But if you have an opportunity to cut down that yellow heart tree, 
because it's in the way or could make your ePay grow better, then it will get cut down. And a lot of times it will sit on on Logyard for a while um, until there really is a buyer for it. And there never has been such a huge market in Yellowheart that there are specific mills just sawing the material. So what's happened is there's always been this kind of undercurrent of these tertiary species flowing through because it's just a byproduct of of managing a good, sustainable concession. And, you know, there'll be enough inquiries that come through to say, you know what, let's saw up this log and let's keep the near inventory around. Well, now margins have gotten so tight. Regulations have amped up a bit. And while there is no, Yellowheart is not CITES listed, but there are additional regulations on anything being exported. There is no log exporting happening out of Brazil specifically. And I spoke several episodes ago about additional regulations for this single document that needs to happen. All of that stuff just has made it harder to export material. And these tertiary species were often exported by, call them C-level companies that didn't really do a huge amount of export work and weren't really well-versed in a lot of those export regulations. Now that the game has gotten a lot more complex, these C-list type exporters have said, you know what, I can find customers in country a lot better. Or I can find customers that, how shall I put this politely? maybe don't ask so many questions and I can export that way. Um, The internet again has opened up a supply of material to a global audience. And there are a lot of other countries that are using and consuming South American woods besides North America and even Europe. So now there's a greater place where that material can go. In the story of Yellowheart though, and, and this would apply to a lot of other species, not just Yellowheart, it's more that the concession owners can't really make the returns on a species like Yellowheart because the demand is just not that high but they can make huge returns on a species like Ipe. So they're going into the forest looking for the Ipe and they're managing for the Ipe or some other more popular species like that. And yellow hearts become kind of an afterthought. With the margins being tight, they don't really want to take the time and spend the money to harvest the yellow heart to saw it into boards when they could be better putting that time towards another species that's going to net them better material. We saw this with African mahogany about eight years ago where just suddenly there was no African mahogany because nobody was cutting it down because it wasn't worth the time to cut it down. At best, they were making pennies on a log, on a log not on a board foot, on a log. And it got to be the point where cutting down that African mahogany tree, hauling out of the forest, sawing it into boards, they were at a loss. They were losing money on the game, so they just stopped cutting them down. Yellowheart, while it's not so cheap that you're running into that, the demand for it is just so niche that they are still losing money on it because that material will sit and sit and sit and you can't really find a buyer for the large quantities of it. What happens is generally a broker will come into play and they'll buy up all those tertiary species all at once. They'll import it and then they will kind of sell it like, you know, out of the trunk of the car. You know, this is, I shouldn't say that. It's all very legally done, but it's kind of a, a potpourri of mix. And you will find retailers who are buying not uh, a thousand board feet of a species, but a thousand board feet of, you know, surprise, <laughs> a grab bag of 20 different species. And that's how the material gets disseminated through. So you're not actually buying yellow heart, you're buying other 
you're buying other species and you get that potpourri box and you put out whatever you can. If you go to somebody and say, I specifically need yellow heart, they will saw it for you, but they're not going to saw it for you for a hundred board feet. And as I said, in my previous question about cherry, these retailers are not carrying large volumes of it anymore. So then you find somebody who specializes in yellow heart, if that exists, and you're buying, um, one or two blanks at a time and that gets really expensive real fast now suddenly you know what you were paying for yellow heart has gone up tenfold and it's just not worth it anymore and because there's not a huge market for it there's not a huge amount of attention being paid to the actual sawing of it and the grading of it so what you get is what you get and there could be a lot of sapwood there could be a lot of checking in the material it's just not you know cared for as much because it is a tertiary or even quadrary species so it's unfortunately it's a it's a factor of the kind of the overall industry and things being tight all around and you know all of these things additional regulations additional demand for material all this stuff has just made it more expensive in general to to manage a forest to saw lumber and to sell lumber and unless that species you're working with drives a high demand it may not be worth it to to uh to look into it so i can't say that there's anything specific with yellow heart it just is one of those species that gets lumped in like snakewood you know well and maybe not snakewood snakewood grows very differently it's a very um you can't get large pieces of it yellow heart the tree is fine it yields um plenty of material but you know if you walk into a brazilian forest one yellow heart tree for every 50 trees you count you know so it just it's becomes one of those things where you're just not going to have a, a huge volume of it to begin with and because there's not that much of it in the forest to begin with they think twice before they cut it down the concession says do you need to cut that down no so you leave it up because there's not like there's really a market for it so why would i cut it down in the first place so long convoluted answer um, to that question. And the key takeaway there is even though I'm talking about yellow heart, I think this would apply to a great many other species. If that particular species doesn't really have a larger industry demand, a, a larger industry application for it, then that's going to be a very common story with all of those species. So there we go, folks. Three different species with kind of the same answer well kind of sort of the same answer across the board but it should give you a little bit of peek into kind of the the uh economics <laughs> this is a whole, whole episode would be an economics lesson so the economists out there who are shaking their head at my inability to succinctly phrase all of this will um can write in and give me some uh, feedback about how i should have said it better in the future but just keep in mind if there is not a large demand for it it's costing somebody somewhere a significant amount of money to actually get that lumber ready to go you know you can't just cut down a tree and you're starting to sell it there's a huge amount of work that has to be done before those boards can be sold and because of regulations there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done in country before it can legally be exported and a lot of these countries just don't want to shoulder that burden for a small order of three or four pieces of yellow heart There's another episode of a lumber update in the can. I hope everyone is staying healthy and happy and uh, sheltering in place and all that fun stuff. And, um, you know, people are still delivering lumber. They're just dropping it on your doorstep and running away before you come to the door. So if you can go buy some lumber. <laughs>